Hello, this is Ken Root. I've decided to change the name of this podcast to People in the Know. Everyone I interview has something important and informative to say, so I believe they are in the know, so that's what I'm going to call it. People in the Know is sponsored by Concept by Iowa Hearing. I've worn their hearing instruments for almost 20 years. Concept by Iowa Hearing, committed to helping you hear better. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877-955-4020 for a free hearing screening. As we are in a year in which we look at the bigger picture of politics, a time when there is serious conflict in our world, and a continuing period of distrust of those we don't know. I want to talk again to Ambassador Kenneth Quinn. He is the President Emeritus of the World Food Prize Organization. If you wish to review our podcast, I have two with him. He has had a long career in the U.S. State Department, culminating as Ambassador to Cambodia, and then moving into the World Food Prize at the beginning of the 21st century until just a few years ago. We may also dip back into his experiences from the 1960s through the 1990s in that arena. But in general, I'd like to talk about how food and trade and trust play a part in making this a more peaceful and plentiful world. Ambassador Quinn, welcome to my podcast. I hope you're doing well. Well, thank you, Ken, for having me. Um, I'm doing uh, pretty well surviving these incredible <laughs> temperatures drops. Uh, our, our, our furnace decided to uh, kick out uh, and stop producing heat uh, when it was about uh, 12 or 14 below zero. But um, through uh, heroic efforts by others, uh, <laughs> we got it running again and uh, didn't have to burn the furniture to stay warm. Uh, in in the fireplace to stay warm. Garrison Keeler, who had a long-running radio show, still does, up in Minnesota called Prairie Home Companion, always had a line that stuck with me after I started living in Iowa. He said, uh, the Midwest is a beautiful place, except about five days a year when Mother Nature tries to kill you. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And, you know, when you get older, uh, you know, uh, like me, uh, you become more vulnerable. <laughs> you can't move as fast as you used to, to uh, stay a few steps ahead of Mother Nature. So I, I, I feel her breath on my neck uh, a few days ago. In a level of seriousness, uh, yes, you can bring forth, I think, in a manner to which almost no one else I know can. And that is the relationships that can be built through agriculture and food and science that can result in people of very different political views all having enough to eat. And when we all have enough to eat, having a better ability to uh, look at our neighbors and look at the world without so much perhaps anger or angst or fear, Dr. Borlaug seemed to, not only in what he did as a scientist, but what he did as a humanitarian, expand this, but really 
Ambassador, in the last 20 years, you've been the guy that's expanding this. Tell me what you can, of how the World Food Prize really uh, allowed people to understand what they could do for themselves by utilizing science and with the encouragement of others from around the world. I'm, I'm very touched and humbled by what you just said about me and carrying forward Dr. Borlaug's legacy. And anytime I could be mentioned in a sentence about either Dr. Borlaug or, or Governor Bob Ray, the, the two individuals I most admire uh, from my public uh, life, uh, is in, in very, very, as I said, very humbling. I learned this lesson of, of peace through agriculture, and I, I find it and found it uh, not only in the work of the World Food Prize and Dr. Borlaug, but in Iowa's rich legacy of what I like to call citizen diplomacy. And if you go to the World Food Prize uh, Hall of Laureates in Des Moines, uh, which I had the great honor um, with uh, John Ruan III and the Ruan family to uh, redo the old Des Moines Public Library and turn it into this, uh, uh, as it were, center, museum, home of the World Food Prize. And we have one room called the Iowa Gallery. And in there, there are about 20 or so artworks that I commission that tell these stories. And when I give tours, I like to start with a painting of uh, Khrushchev uh, on the Garst farm out at the corn crib with Roswell Garst. And Khrushchev's holding up an ear of corn. And as the story goes, saying to Garst, uh, why can't I have corn like this in the Soviet Union. And at that time, as I would tell people on the tour, this was the most dangerous moment in human history. When nuclear weapons in both the US and the Soviet Union were poised and ready to be fired at each other. And what uh, this trip by Khrushchev to the Garst farm, uh, it led to several decades of Garst and his nephew, John Crystal, wonderful, wonderful man, going back and forth to the Soviet Union as sort of small A ambassadors of American agriculture and bringing and exchanging technology and information and, and know-how. And they never discussed treaties to reduce the number of missiles uh, or in anything. But what they did do was they demonstrated how there could be some understanding and there could be understanding and exchanges between people that can increase that, that space where we make uh, our governments make decisions about whether to go to war or not. And there, there's another quote in that building, which is from me, which is that it's in dealing with and coming together to address hunger and human suffering, to reduce hunger and human suffering, can bring people together across 
some of the greatest differences between us, be they political, diplomatic, religious, ethnic, that that's the power of agriculture and food. And so when I retired as a diplomat, came home to Iowa to take the, over the leading the World Food Prize, I wanted to build that lesson into all that we did to combine how dealing with national security and global food security could help bring people together and build peace and understanding while at the same time reducing human suffering from hunger, famine, malnutrition. And of course, the, the leading saint, the leading evangelist, the leading prophet of that movement was Norman Borlaug. And Borlaug's work first in Mexico and using science, using science there to produce this new variety of miracle wheat that could resist disease and could grow in shorter time frames, and at the same time, double, triple, quadruple the yield was, as it said, like a miracle. And this would, you know, his work there would be the start of the Green Revolution, which would see similar breakthrough achievements in rice. Uh, at the uh, International Rice Research Institute uh, in the uh, 1950s, 1960s, uh, by American scientist named Hank Beechel from Nebraska, uh, and the uh, Indian scientists named Gurdav Kush uh, and others, and Chinese scientists like Yunlong Ping and Indian scientists like M.S. Swaminathan, that all of those scientists agricultural scientists working together, sharing information, sharing breakthrough research with each other, produced uh, this period, produced the single greatest period of food production and hunger reduction in all human history. And I felt that Dr. Borlaug, who I have to say, when I came in 1999, Ken, uh, outside of some individuals like yourself and those who were deeply involved in agriculture, almost no one in Iowa had ever heard of Norman Borlaug. I think, you know, he was uh, perhaps, you know, more, more, more well known in, in India than Iowa. Uh, and I said, my goodness, this is uh, his, his legacy. He deserves to be our greatest hero. And I spent the next 10, 15 years endeavoring to make him into uh, our greatest hero. And with the very, very welcome support of uh, both Governor Vilsack, Governor Branstad, political leaders of both parties, we elevated Norman Borlaug to this incredible uh, status that he so richly deserves. But uh, in carrying on that tradition, at the World Food Prize, what we endeavored to do was through our selection committee for our winner each year, choose individuals who reflected 
that level of achievement. And at the same time, in our Borlaug Dialogue Symposium, make it into the Davos Global Food Security. At that time, in the early 2000s, there was no, uh, there were no big meetings uh, uh, of uh, individuals, top scientists, business leaders, etc., coming together anywhere uh, to, to look at these issues. And so I endeavored to, to do that, to bring international scientists uh, in the Borlaug Dialogue. And then how can we inspire the next generation of young people? When I arrived, there were about 20 or 25 students total uh, who came to the World Food Prize. Uh, when I retired 20 years later, uh, we were impacting up to 10,000 students a year across the U.S. and at uh, 10 or more countries, uh, including Mexico and India and China, uh, in uh, Central America. The, um, and so uh, in, in doing this, endeavoring to uh, promote the concept of peace through agriculture. Just to mention just a couple of examples. In uh, 2001, our conference, which took place right after 9-11, I had put on the agenda before 9-11 the threats of agro-terrorism and bioterrorism. And so we had seven or eight of the leading experts in the world coming to Des Moines, coming to Iowa, one month after 9-11, to discuss the threat uh, of terrorists to the agricultural system. And uh, the head of the uh, FDA, uh, the American FDA, said that the issues discussed in Des Moines at the World Food Prize kept America safe in the months, immediate months after 9-11. So I was really pleased with that, and that started to get us noticed. Uh, the next year, I brought water scientists, uh, irrigation specialists from Israel and uh, the, the Middle East uh, to uh, Des Moines for a conference on global water insecurity. So imagine here in Des Moines, we had the chief Israeli water engineer, other water irrigation scientists. We had uh, Palestinians from the West Bank uh, and Arabs uh, from uh, uh, Syria and from uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, all in Des Moines to discuss that. Just And there are a number of others, but 2012, we... Uh, our winner of our prize was Daniel Hillel, uh, an Israeli uh, Jew, Jewish uh, irrigation pioneer who began by making the deserts bloom in Israel and then spread his work throughout the Middle East, who had been nominated for the World Food Prize by three Muslim and Arab scientists. And uh, Ban Ki-moon, the Secretary General of the UN made a special trip to Des Moines uh, and was there in the state capitol in the House chamber, standing with John Ruan 
Governor Branstead and myself as we presented the uh, World Food Prize to Daniel Hillel. In the audience were an Israeli diplomat. On one side of him was Princess Haya bin Al Hussein, the daughter of King Hussein, a Muslim princess who was a UN messenger of peace. On the other side of the Israeli diplomat was an Arab sheikh from Qatar. And in the audience were a, uh, an assemblage of uh, Christians, Buddhists, Hindus, practitioners of, uh, of, of other religions or no, no religion uh, from uh, 40 or 50 countries from around the globe and all standing together, cheering together for this uh, Israeli scientist who had made his breakthrough achievement. Uh, I've had experiences of speaking in, uh, in China, in Iran, uh, in, uh, uh, at, at the UN in New York. And I am forever uh, talking about the same theme of how to build peace through agriculture, peace through ex agricultural exchanges that can take place, uh, and peace through international cooperation, peace through uplifting, feeding hungry people, preventing famine and starvation. Because as Dr. Borlaug would say, and his quote is enshrined at the Hall of Laureates, food is the moral right of all who are born into this world. So through art, through architecture, through music, I commissioned a, a symphony to be written in honor of Dr. Borlaug, Symphony to the Prairie Farm, through uh, speakers, through programs to uplift youth, inspire the next generation, and to present a prize, which our goal was, and I'm happy to say I succeeded uh, with enormous help in having the World Food Prize come to be referred to by global leaders as the quote unquote Nobel Prize for Food and Agriculture. And I believe they've gone to a very significant extent making Iowa, the state where I grew up and I love, uh, the center, the global center of the fight against hunger and malnutrition and the place where the inspiration for the next 25 years, where we will confront the single greatest challenge human beings have ever confronted, which is, can we sustainably and nutritiously feed the nine to 10 billion people who will be on our planet by the year 2046, when Iowa celebrates its 200th anniversary as a state. And uh, we, this is, a, you know, I think the Iowa caucuses, uh, we're so proud we start the presidential search, but have shown our, our country is divided, deeply divided, deeply divided. And, but honoring Dr. Borlaug, 
honoring Iowa's achievements in agriculture and honoring and being proud of the mission that Dr. Borlaug and Herbert Hoover and Henry A. Wallace and George Washington Carver all uh, have shown our, our state's greatest heroes have shown the way is peace through agriculture is a way of uniting not only our country to other countries, other regions, but also uniting Americans with each other. Let's take a moment to talk with Taylor Parker, president of Concept by Iowa Hearing. Taylor, I've heard there's a link between hearing loss and dementia. Could you tell me more about the correlation? That is a great question, Ken, and it's one that, um, you know, has been out there for quite a few years. Johns Hopkins uh, was the first one that uh, Dr. Frank Lynn, that kind of made the correlation. We always knew there was something going on with, you know, hearing loss, the brain, and things just weren't, weren't, you know, adding up. And his research now, he's been doing his research for about over 40 years. What he found is that individuals with an untreated hearing loss, even mild, you are two to five times more likely to develop dementia. And, you know, most people will say, well, why is that? And it's, it's you know, when you understand how hearing works, it starts to become simple from the standpoint of just understanding it. So our ears conduct sound. And then the sound then gets carried from the middle ear to the cochlea, where the cochlea, there's 15,000 tiny little hairs in the cochlea that now move back and forth that send the signal up to the brain where the brain processes that information. And when you have a untreated hearing loss, what happens is those hairs in the cochlea will either get broken, um, bent, or just not move like they used to. Well, what happens then is they're not sending a full signal to the brain. You know, you've been in radio for, for many, many years. You'll understand this. So imagine, you know, back in the day we were driving down the road, raining really hard or, you know, some kind of elements or we went underneath the bridge and the radio signal would go out. And you're listening to, you know, Paul Harvey at noon and you are, are not quite getting that whole Paul Harvey. And now you're trying to piece it together. You're sitting there, you're leaning forward. You're really trying to get it all to work out. That is your brain all day with an untreated hearing loss. It's trying to piece it together and it's working harder. Well, what it does is it pulls from two areas. It pulls from cognitive and it pulls from balance and gait to compensate for that, that gap because of an untreated hearing loss. The brain then has to work harder. It shrinks. And now we run into a cognitive issue because we've pulled from the cognitive area to help focus on hearing loss, that's where the, the connection now starts to come in. Thank you, Taylor. Schedule your free hearing screening at Concept by Iowa Hearing. You can reach them at 877-955-4020 or online at iowahearing.com. You know, uh, Ambassador Quinn, I uh, have to agree with you on the uh, Nobel Prize for Agriculture. Uh, Dr. Borlaug won the Nobel Peace Prize back in 1970 for his work. And uh, in many ways, that's a long time ago. That's uh, 53 years ago. Yes. 
in the life expectancy of people in uh, quite a few countries of the world. You said something to me, and I held it close since uh, the first podcast we did when you were in Vietnam without a gun, and you were going from village to village in the 1960s trying to help the people to, uh, the best road forward was to consider that they could be uh, independent people and that uh, they should not uh, move toward the North Vietnamese uh, communist point of view. And one of the things you mentioned was the roads that were built. And, um, you know, we talk about roads to peace and roads to progress, but roads physically seem to make a big difference in the progress of societies and I wonder if you would comment on that, of what you've seen around the world on that literally happening. Yes, uh, Ken, you have, you have a wonderful memory of that. And and the and that has been a big theme of my, uh, and probably the main theme of my professional career, more than, you know, five decades, five decade long career. And uh, the, the road out of poverty is the road is what i would say and and i learned that lesson in vietnam uh because i was working in eight uh, vietnamese rice growing villages which had each of which had its kind of underground Viet Cong, north vietnamese communist movement that was pretty effective and uh, farmers were mostly subsistence rice growing farmers and their families and uh, young and their children were pretty susceptible to uh, communist uh, propaganda and communist uh, talking points, if you will, about why they should go off and join with the re with the rebels. And um, these eight rice growing villages were all connected by an old dirt road that had been built by the um, French during colonial period, and the road had terribly deteriorated. Now, I was there as a very young 26-year-old American diplomat who had, uh, instead of going off to uh, London or Paris and issuing visas, as I had expected, here I was seconded to USAID, and I'm out as a rural development advisor uh, and going through these villages. And I was facilitating two things that were happening. We had the big programs. One was our agricultural extension workers, Americans and South Vietnamese, who we were supporting, were coming down with these new rice seeds called IR8 that had been developed in the Philippines at the International Rice Research Institute by Hank Beachel from Nebraska research scientists, just like Norman Borlaug, who had grown up in the mid Midwest and ended up uh, not working on wheat that he grew on his family farm, but rice. And they had developed these amazing seeds that could grow in uh, three months instead of six months is what how long traditional rice took. And you could get two crops a year and instead of one. And each crop would be triple or quadruple the yield of their previous traditional floating rice uh, that was used. 
And uh, so these extension workers job was to go, you know, like it is now, go farm to farm, farmer to farmer, finding ways to introduce seeds, get farmers to try them and hopefully see the results and uh, and have improvement. Separately and quite by chance, we also had a project going on to upgrade this old road. And uh, I had a kind of the equivalent of, you know, a Land Rover, American International Harvester Scout was called. And I'd drive it down this old French bumpy road, you know, about five miles an hour. And you know, there weren't enough bridges or any over the many canals. And maybe some of them I could drive through, but others I just couldn't continue. So it was very hard. So we were upgrading that road and we were brought in engineers and road graders and rebuilt the surface and put, you know, hardened it, put in culverts, gravel on top. And now you could get that, you know, 30, 40, 50 miles an hour if you wanted to through four of the eight villages. And uh, trucks could come down from Saigon and uh, wholesalers could go to the farm gate and buy directly from farmers in four of those eight villages. And as I drove around, uh, going to uh, all eight villages and four of them conveniently and the other four with great difficulty, uh, I learned the lesson of my life. Because what I observed was that it was only in those villages where we had fixed the road that farmers used the new seeds, the new agricultural technology. And the in just a year or two, the results uh, were dramatic. And now farmers, because they sold off their surplus uh, rice production, they had cash income, they had uh, money for which to fix up their house, to maybe buy a motor scooter or a, uh, a, a little uh, uh, tractor or a little, a little uh, you know, plowing machine to use what uh, their children look better fed, better nourished. Child mortality went down because if you now had a sick child, you could get that child out to medical help because of the road. And, and most impressive of all, we used to have to go to the villages with heavy security during the day and we didn't dare go at night. Now, to those four villages with the road improved, we could go day or night, didn't have to have much security at all. And the impact and effectiveness of the underground Viet Cong, North Vietnamese seemed to evaporate. But in the other eight villages, uh, the other four villages without the road, life was unchanged probably from a hundred years ago. People still lived in terrible poverty. They got had only this traditional rice seeds that were just uh, enough to sustain their family with enough food. There was no surplus. And the Viet Cong, North Vietnamese were as strong as ever. And so there I was 26 years old not brought up in American agriculture, and I learned the lesson of my life, the transformative power of roads and 
seeds. And standing there, 10,000 miles or so from Iowa, I suddenly realized what it was that had transformed my home state, that had transformed middle America, that had transformed probably almost all of America. It was building those farm to market roads every mile in every direction and at crisscross Iowa that transformed our state. You know, Norman Borlaug and John Ruan Sr., when I'd be with them, they would talk about the uh, theme uh, in the 1930s in Iowa. The big uh, uh, theme was get Iowa out of the mud. It was putting up the money to build those roads that we all take for granted and that transformed Iowa. And I saw the same thing uh, going to China. When I went to China for the first time in 1979 to meet Deng Xiaoping, but what I saw was that uh, China had about only less than 50% of rural farm to market roads that either existed or were passable, were upgraded. When uh, China in 2019, when China announced that they had basically eliminated low level abject poverty, China had close to 100% of rural road upgrade and penetration. The roads are this key element. You know, Ken, I, I had the incredible honor and privilege to address uh, the UN uh, in New York on World Food Day, October 16th uh, in 2013. Actually, the event was held in November, but uh, was to celebrate the UN World Food Day. And uh, at that time, I, I told the audience, I said, if you were to take the world hunger map and lay it out on a table, the UN has a world hunger map, and it shows with shaded areas of all the continents where the most hungry people are. And you, you wouldn't be surprised to see that it's in Africa, in South Asia, and uh, Central uh, America, where most of the hunger is. And I said, if you take and lay upon top of that the world conflict map, so that you could see, you'd see that most of the insurgencies, conflicts, warfare, uh, that's uh, terrorism that's going on, occurs in those places where there is hunger and where there is most severe hunger and malnutrition. I said, and if then, if you can uh, find one, you put on top of those two, the world rural road farm to market highway map. And you'd see that where the road, the farm to market roads end, where the road ends is where hunger, poverty, and malnutrition, and conflict, insurgency, and terrorism all begin. It's building roads be the critical element 
not the only one. You got to have the good seeds. You got to have good fertilizer. You got to have other uh, good soil, uh, good policies. You got to be able to trade. You got to be able to stop uh, pandemic, uh, plant disease, animal disease. Got to be able to adapt to the climate. But the roads, these upgraded roads. So in all of my speeches that I gave in uh, 20. 20, 21, 22, 23, I was in China several times, said, uh, I believe that through agricultural cooperation, built on that citizen diplomacy that has connected Iowa uniquely to Xi Jinping, through Norman Borlaug, through the World Food Prize and World Food Prize laureates, uh, through the reception of Soviet leader Khrushchev to Iowa, all that legacy that we could, we should be able to promote uh, and encourage China and the United States to join together in a 25-year endeavor to build, upgrade rural roads all across Africa because rural roads situation in Africa today looks like China in 1979 and Iowa in 1933. Through this such an initiative, through such a cooperation, through such citizen diplomacy efforts, through partnership in road building and with it, the agricultural extension that would follow, that we could enable our planet to remain at peace, because this would help build peace between the US and China, and that we can address the single greatest challenge that humans have ever confronted, and which was the theme of that 2014 World Food Prize Borlaug Dialogue in Des Moines, the world's greatest challenge of producing and distributing nutritious food produced sustainably and distributed to feed the nine to 10 billion people who will be on our planet when we uh, reach that year 2046. You know, when uh, Dr. Borlaug um, when Iowa was opened for development as a state in uh, 1834, the estimated population of the world, of our planet, was about 1 billion people. In 1914, when Dr. Borlaug was born, uh, the estimated global population was 1.7 billion people. So from 1834, opening of Iowa to 1914, we added about another 700 million people, 1.7. 95 years later, uh, when Dr. Borlaug passed away in 2009, the population of our planet had risen to 7 billion people. So 84 years between 1834 and Borlaug's birth, we added 700 million, 95 years from Borlaug's birth 
to his death. We added 5.3 billion people. Now, today, 2024, there are 8 billion, and it will be somewhere between 9 and 10 billion 22 years from now when we celebrate Iowa's uh, bicentennial. My guest is Ambassador Kenneth Quinn, the Emeritus World Food Prize Foundation president. And Ambassador, I always love to hear each of the things that you have to say that bring perspective to what we're talking about. We could delve more deeply into the roads in Africa built by China now and whether or not that's good for them or not. And we could certainly delve into U.S. foreign policy, whether it is good and um, whether we'll be around as a world to see 2046 because of all the conflicts that we have. But you've given us perspective and a delightful presentation. And uh, I thank you once again for being with me. Well, Ken, it's always an honor to be on your podcast. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. And uh, want to wish you and, and, and everyone who's listening uh, my hope that you have just a wonderful 2024 filled with uh, continued great success and with uh, the information and hopefully inspiration, Ken, that you provide through your podcast so that we will be encouraged to endeavor to continue to build that road out of poverty for our entire planet. Thanks for listening to People in the Know. I'm on the hunt for guests to interview. If you have suggestions, contact me at this email address, kenroot at gmail.com, K-E-N-R-O-O-T at gmail.com. Have a great week. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall the starry crown good lord show me the way oh sisters let's go down let's go down come on down oh sisters let's go down down in the river to pray as I went down in the river to pray studying about that good old way I went down